Greetings and Shabbat Shalom to the 12 tribes out there scattered abroad. We are looking at part three today of Liars, Lunatics and Demons. Part three. And I want to thank all of you out there that do support this ministry, our donors. Without you, it wouldn't be possible. So thank you so much for your continued support. Now remember, you can go to TorahToTheTribes.com to the Connect page and sign up for the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll be celebrating next week. We still have a couple of spaces open for the cabins. I think we have one RV space that actually opened up as well. So please connect with us at TorahToTheTribes.com and register for the Feast of Tabernacles. Include Part three, liars, lunatics, and demons. So please, you out there, give us some thumbs up if you like this teaching. It really does help with our analytics and getting people to um, be a part of what we're doing here at Torah to the Tribe. Subscribe to the channel. It makes a difference. It really does. And if you're really radical, hit the notifications button. And then every time we go live, you'll get a little ding-dong. So there you have it. Liars, lunatics, and demons. Let's talk about the polluted bed of whoredoms shared by the Jesuits, Islam, and the synagogue of Satan. So today I'm going to look into the finality of liars, lunatics, and demons because what we're up against is an infiltration from the Jesuits, Islam, and of course all headed up by the synagogue of Satan to try and lead us all astray with fairy tales and fantasy. That's what it is. When you get to the root, it's fairy tales and fantasy. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? Technical criticism. Who's the master of infiltrating the flock? Who's the master of twisting the word? If thou shalt be the son of Elohim, command that these stones be made of bread. If thou be the son of Elohim, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou should dash thy foot against a stone. All these things, everything set before thee, will I give thee if thee will just Fall down and worship me. There is nothing new under the sun. Satan is the master of textual criticism. The master of trying to bring in fantasy and fairy tale amongst the flock. And this isn't about accusing anybody but the accuser of the brethren. That's what this is about. I have no problems with reading fantasy and fairy tale. But I will be honest with you and say, this is fantasy and fairy tale. What I do have a problem with is S.A. Tan using people to masquerade fantasy and fairy tale as divine inspiration. That I have a problem with. Let's just be honest with one another, please. If we're trying to disseminate fantasy and fairy tale, let's just say that's what we're doing. And if we're trying to disseminate biblical truth, inspiration, and doctrine, which is sound, then let's be clear that that's what we're doing. That's all I'm asking. I have no problem if you decide that you want to go and join a book club and, and study the latest fantasy and fairy tale. Allegory and myth. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But just be clear to everybody that that's what you're doing. It's when the lines get blurred that we're looking at S.A. Tan's infiltration, who tries to blur, to blur the lines. 
1 Timothy 1.3 really sums it up perfectly. As I urged you upon my departure to Macedonia, Paul writes, remain one at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach weirdo doctrines. Well, not weirdo, but if he was around today, that's what he would say. A bunch of weirdo doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to speculation. And that's what this is all about. This whole series is about speculative theories floated by fancy pants men. That's what it's all about. And I just want to know where you stand. And I think everybody out there wants to know where you stand. It's clear where I stand. Biblical inspiration, sound doctrine. And if I'm going to talk about fancy pants and fairy tales, then I'll be very clear to tell you that's what we're doing. So we all know where we're standing. But S.A. Tan wants to blur the lines, confuse the brethren. Well, you know, what's true? Well, it could be, is it, you know? No. Let's be clear with clarity because there's too much mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of Elohim, which is always going to be by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love. This is really what it's all about. The whole purpose of this teaching, liars, lunatics, and demons, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. Because I want, as you want, out there and in here, to apprehend the sincere faith that was once delivered from the saints. We have spent too long listening to the doctrines of men to come this far and then have fancy pants come in and infiltrate the faith with myth and fairy tale and the doctrines of men again. Just because it's got a Jewish flavor, it's no worse than any tradition the men or no better we don't want it it's not appropriate for where we're at in our faith which is i hope as for me in my house a sincere faith too long listening to the traditions of men too long having it mixed in with a sunday sermon it's not what we're about here at torah to the tribes and in the ministry of the faith for some men, straying from these things, they have turned aside to these fruitless discussions. And they really are fruitless. Wanting to be teachers of the Torah, even though they do not understand either. I'm reading this to you because I want you to look at this text, because this really breaks it down of where it all comes from, and I'm going to flay it right open for you today in finality, wanting to be teachers of the Torah, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make very confident assertions. And that's how brethren get deceived. It ends up in either my inbox online or really when I came back from holiday, a lot of snail mail saying, Matthew, can you answer these questions? Could you do a teaching which really clearly says what is inspiration is and what is not your opinions on it? So I thought, well, why not? This is birth from a good conscience and a right place of wanting to move forward and apprehend the true faith. So we're going to look at a couple of things today. Firstly, a couple of interesting characters, Westcott and Hort. Who the hell are Westcott and Hort? Well, I bring up hell because it's an, a very, a, very appropriate thing to bring up when you're speaking of Westcott and Hort. I don't trust them. They were occultists. They were Bible translators, and they came out with their New Testament in the original Greek, and it was published in 1881. 
published by Westcourt and Hort. They were, in fact, Darwinian theologians who rejected the authority of Scripture. They rejected biblical salvation. They rejected the reality of hell. And they rejected substitutionary atonement. What business would such characters have in translating the Bible? A very important business if you are the henchman of Satan. Because these little devils believed Yahusha to be a created being that should be worshipped with Mary, his mother. They openly admitted to, quote, trifling alterations within the Greek text, which ushered in a new period within church history. So they actually admitted, quote, trifling alterations, end quote, with the Greek text, which ushered in, quote, new period, a new period in church history. They had an agenda. They had an agenda. They grabbed hold of some of the earlier Greek manuscripts and brought through this new translation. Now, the problem is, here we are hundreds of years down the, the road, and many within the Messianic movement that want to make a nice bit of coin with a new Bible translation do the very same thing. They're not going to go with the majority text, right? Why wouldn't they choose the majority text for their translations? Because the majority of us already have it. So they go with a minority text, which would be Westcott and Hort, throw in a little bit of Hebrewisms, and Bob's your uncle, Fanny's your aunt, you've got yourself an Hebraic translation rooted in oftentimes occult literature. How could that be so? Well, let me explain. These fools were liars, lunatics, and they cohabited with demons. Let me explain. Because I do not trust their translations. Westcott and Hort, they were heavily involved, in fact, with the occult, and they were members of the spiritist societies, the Hermes Club, and the Ghostly Guild. I said Hermes, not the Herpes Club. The Hermes Club and the Spooky Ghostly Guild. Basically, these dudes like to hang out with ghosts and ghouls in churches and cathedrals late at night, and they called it the Communion of the Saints, which sounds kind of legit. Oh, I'm going to have the commun... Yeah, but no, it's not legit. Like I said when I, we started off, I know this from my English boarding school days, this term and what it actually means. And it's very spooky, goosely guilds. Jeremiah speaks about such men. What does he say in the 8th chapter and the 8th verse? He says, Lo, certainly in vain made he it, the pen of the scribes, it is vanity. Vanity, vanity, vanity. So, like I said, I do trust, when it comes to the Bible, the Textus Receptus. Why? Because, like its name says, it is the vast majority text. Over 95% of our Greek manuscripts are within this majority text. Over 5,300 of the Greek manuscripts in existence make up the majority text. That's why it's called the majority text, right? Versus the minority text, which sometimes, oftentimes today, I should say, these new translations, especially these Hebraic ones, tend to pull from which, of course, Westcourt and Hort relied on heavily. These texts are Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. And do you know what Vaticanus, the Vatican, means? You see, in Rome, there was this hill. And 
this is where they buried the dead in this hill. It was a swampy, swampy graveyard. And what would happen when the rains came, that the bodies would, kind of like they did down in New Orleans when they had the hurricane, the bodies would float to the surface on this marshy hill, and the canines would come and feed on the bodies. Vati, habitation, canus of the dogs. Where did they build the Vatican? Right on top of this body site. So a little bit telling, isn't it? The Vatican, the house or habitation of dogs. Well, Revelation tells us exactly who the whore is. Jesuits, supported now by Islam, which was invented in the 6th century, and of course funded and supported at its root by the ministers of Satan, the synagogue of Satan. And we're exposing this, and many people in the Messianic movement, in the Christian Zionist movement, are starting to see what we're up against. Because it's prophesied in the second and third chapter of the book of Revelation that there's going to be a people, you, at the end of days, that's going to wake up to the synagogue of Satan and their infiltration into every avenue of our life, religious political, and financial. And now they're putting in all these anti-Semitism laws they're trying to put through in America, which would make it an anti-Semitic thing to criticize the created Zionist state, which was created in 1948, whereas true biblical Zionism is totally different from political Zionism. It's a dangerous time to live. It's a dangerous time to live. So, all that to say this, I'm a big fan of Textus Receptus. Side note, those of you, hopefully none of you out there, I know not in here, I see none whatsoever. You realize that the NIV, the nearly inspired version, alters and completely changes the meanings of more than 64,000 words in the Bible. Now, I like the New American Standard. I really do. But it better be one of the older New American Standard Bibles. Because if you've got a New American Standard after 1977... It has 7,000 fewer words than the one published before 1977. What's up with that? Nobody told us about that, did they? Well, what happened? Somebody nicked 7,000 words from your Bible? I have a problem with that type of thing. That bothers me, especially when nobody talks about it. So we do need to be aware of what's going on. I'm going to take a sip from our Mexican sponsor today. To our friends in Snohomish that got me hooked on this. Anyway, we're talking about liars, lunatics, and demons. What better thing to bring up than the book of Enoch? Any way you slice it, I don't care how you like your bread, any way you slice it, Enoch is pseudepigraphical literature. It is pseudepigraphical literature. Everybody's in agreement with that. Nobody has any doubts that it is pseudepigraphical literature. What does that mean? Literature that is falsely attributed to a figure in the past. Meaning we all know that the real fella Enoch, back before Noah, didn't write it. Everybody's in agreement. All scholars are in total agreement that it is not that writer. But it's attributed to him, that's a lie. 
Well, in say, instead of saying the lying book of Enoch, they, they have, you know, a big theological broad phrase term, pseudepigraphical. But basically it's saying it's a hoax. We all know it's a hoax, so let's give it this term, pseudepigraphical, and now we can move on. So that's enough of a problem for me, but some of you are still besotted by this book. But again, if we're at some fantasy fairy tale venture, no problem. But we're talking about biblical reality, is it? Let's examine. You guys decide. I've made my decision, and I'll show you why. Enoch was written by the Essenes, probably, which is a pseudo-pagan cult, which would explain why it is found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, wouldn't it? That makes perfect sense to me. Personally, the Book of Enoch, I think, has way more kinship with the Book of Mormon than it does with the 66. Way more kinship with the Book of Mormon than it does the 66. Because the mysterious author of the Book of Enoch, like old Joseph Smith, had some weird visitations. Visitations which then gave apparent special revelation. Special revelation from God, which he then translated into the Book of Enoch. And today, only the Ethiopian church, and interestingly enough, the Mormon religion, consider the Enochian writings to be authoritative. Well, that's kind of strange, isn't it? Why? Why so? So you decide, but I'm going to give you a three-pronged poke of the book of Enoch. I'm going to give you a three-pronged poke of the book of Enoch. Number one, I'm going to ask you some questions and you decide. But before I go in, I'm going to say this. If you don't believe Yahushua's the Messiah, if you don't believe that his blood atonement is the only way to the Father, then I could understand why possibly you'd be enamored by this book. But I count you then not as a brother or a sister. But brothers and sisters, if we believe that Yahushua is our Savior, our alone salvation, and His blood alone atones for sinners, and He is the only mediator between man and Elohim, then you cannot be confused on this issue. I'm going to give you a three-pronged poke, and you guys decide. I'll ask you the question. Who is set over the repentance of those who receive eternal life? Who? Who is set over the repentance of those who receive eternal life? The Bible gives you a very clear answer in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. tells us that Yahushua is the only one set over repentance of those who receive eternal life. There is one mediator between Yahuwah and man. For there is one Elohim and one mediator between Elohim and man, the man Messiah, Yahushua. Very clear. Anybody confused? No confusion here. Super clear. But Enoch, on this issue, says no. No, 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 no. There's this freaky little angel, really a demon, called Faniel. Faniel. Faniel, in fact, is set over the repentance of those who inherit eternal life. In chapter 40, verse 9, it is written, And the fourth angel who is set over the repentance unto hope of those who inherit eternal life, is named Faniel. You decide. For me, 
You don't need to read the whole book when you can break it down in such clarity. Between biblical truth, fantasy, myth, and fairy tale. But if you don't believe Yahushua is the Messiah, like many of the Jewish mystics that Paul was dealing with, you can see how people convolute the truth. But as for me and you who claim the name of Yahushua, there is no gray area. It's black and white. It's cut and dry. There is one mediator between man and Yahuwah, and it's not this freaky demon called Faniul. Repentance is strictly between man and Yahushua alone. Strictly. Only Yahushua died for our sins. He shed his blood to pay the penalty for you and for me. First Peter chapter 1 verse 18 is very clear. Not some freaky angel called Faniel. You see, but they're not going to give you these texts. They're going to get you into the calendar and all of this crazy stuff. And get you all like enamored, but they're not going to actually break it down for you like I'll break it down for you. Because then you can decide. Because you can present all of this, but if it's got lies in it, the atonement and blood of Yahushua, it's pretty clear, right? For me and for you and for anybody that is discerning. So, so far, I've only asked one question. I've only poked you with one prong, and it's already, I've got two more pokes and two more prongs to go. It's already apparent, isn't it, that the writer of Enoch is a cunning little deceiving devil, an imposter who leads people to believe otherwise when it comes to one mediator between Elohim and man. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22 clearly indicts all Yahushua deniers as lying mamas. That's plain and simple. Guilty before Yahuwah as they should be. So if you're still wondering, I'm not, but maybe you are, and maybe you out there are still wondering. I'm going to turn the light up brighter for you. Because you know what? They want to hide in the dark. We're just going to turn the light brighter up then, aren't we? First, Enoch denies the deity of Yahushua by stealing. Listen, by stealing the messianic prophecies from Daniel, from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, from Ezekiel, and applying them to himself. The second prong I'm going to stick you with is the parables of Enoch. In First Enoch from chapter 37 through chapter 71. It's called the Parables of Enoch. It's a fairy tale where Enoch is taken to heaven and shown prophetic visions concerning the eschatological son of man. I had a problem with that. I'll have another sip from our sponsor and see if I can say the word properly afterwards, and then we'll really want to buy more. Eschatological. It's good stuff. The eschatological son of man. So the parables of Enoch are in direct conflict with the teachings of the New Testament because the New Testament strictly applies the identity of the messianic son of man to who? To Yahushua. So what I love about my Savior, who I met when I was 24 years old, is he speaks to me, as he speaks to you, through the Word, through the Holy Spirit. And what I love and that I know him is that he always clears up the clutter with such clarity by always bringing it back to himself. Because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's so much clutter. And we can get into all the clutter. But when you bring everything the lens, the lens of blood, and clarity appears. Was that the first cutout? 
second. All right, I may have to go to the hand mic. All right, let me know our chat online. You guys out there, help us here in studio. If we do have some cutout on the microphone, then that's because the prince of the airway seeks to destroy the message. But it could just be that we don't know what the Henry we're doing with all this technical equipment. But, you know, anyway. The parables of Enoch are in direct conflict with the teachings of the New Testament. Let me read to you. Enoch chapter 71 verses 13 and 14. It is written. And the head of days came with Michael and Raphael and Gabriel and the freaky demon Phenyel. Here he is again. Phenyel and thousands and tens of thousands of angels without number. And he came to me. What a boaster. I mean, what a boaster. Listen to this. And he came to me. I mean, if any human being we knew said this back in the day, he would be guilty for a ripe old stoning. A ripe old blasphemous stoning. The clarity of this is so clear. That was a double, you know, whatever. And he came to me and he greeted me with his voice and he said thus, You are the Son of Man who was born for righteousness. And righteousness dwells on you and the righteousness of the head of days will not forsake you. Now, this is the Hermenia translation, which is a stricter translation because there's some liberal ones out there. But this is actually the Chemenia translation. It's clear right here. First, Enoch contradicts the teachings of the apostles, contradicts the teachings of the disciples concerning Yahusha as the Son of Man. He rips off the prophecies from Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and attributes it to himself instead of Yahusha. So again, if you're some Jewish mystic and you don't believe that Yahusha's the Messiah, I could see why you might float this fantasy fairy tale. But if you're a believer and counted as a brother and sister, then what are you doing even conflating this with divine scripture. It's not that complicated. But the ministers of what? Myth. Spin it. They sidestep the truth. Just like they'll take this and say, oh no, it's not really talking about son of man as in like days and thundering son of man, redemption, the messianic prophecy. It's really talking like, you know, you're a son of Adam. They sidestep it. But no, the whole context of First Enoch chapters 37 to 71 isn't about humanity. It's about the messianic vision. So don't try and rework it to sidestep the lies. It's a clear contradiction of the disciples and the apostles' message regarding Yahusha. So there's my second prong poke. And here we go for the third prong poke. Now that's not a gang sign or anything ruined or because you know what people are did you see Matthew Nolan? Did you he made a Luciferic gang sign? Well you know he's that's what happens, right? You gotta be careful. It's like I accused the guy from one of those Christian bands because he was doing this. And I was like, devil horns, devil horns. My wife's like, calm down. Guys, not devil horns. I'm like, he's doing devil horns. She's like, no, no. He's like saying, hang loose. It's like, okay, you sure? Okay, let's make sure we're... You've got to be careful nowadays, right? All these blooming gang signs, occultic wickedness. All right, the three-pronged approach. Get back on track, boy. Was the Son of Man named? And I'm not talking Matthew chapter 1 here. I'm talking big picture. 
was the Son of Man named? Well, let's see what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 1 verse 8. I am the Aleph Tav, the beginning and the ending, saith Yahweh, the Kurios, which is and which was and which is to come, the Shaddai. Yahusha is eternal without beginning or end. Oh, but not according to Enoch. Oh, no, 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 no. In Enoch chapter 48, verse 2, we have a total contradiction. And at that hour, the Son of Man was named in the presence of the Lord of Spirit. Who, who's the Lord of Spirits anyway? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fenior. Yeah, that's the Lord of Spirits. Okay? Who's the Lord of Spirits? And his name before the head of days. So this is in total contradiction. Yahusha is the Aleph Tav. The beginning from the end. The end from the beginning. Not named before the Lord of Spirits and before the head of days. This is a total contradiction. All this to say, first Enoch is pseudepigraphica. It wasn't even written by the supposed author Enoch because Enoch lived before Noah and no one believes that the book was actually written by Enoch. But men have got Bibles to sell. And if you stick this in to your Westcott and Hort translation, guess what? It's ready for a bit of minting and people will buy it. Let's be real. And it's usually put forth by the synagogue of Satan. How do I know? Because I've sat down with many of the editors over the years and had these conversations. The reason that the book has a falsely claimed authorship is sufficient enough reason to reject any claim to inspiration of the book. But I've given you three prongs in which to deflate this big fantasy balloon. But because it's got hooks into so many of you out there, I thought I would force you to make a choice. You have to make a choice on who you say Yahushua is if you're going to be real about the book of Enoch. Who do you say the Messiah is? Is it Enoch or is it Yahushua? Who do you say Yahushua is? You have to look at it through the lens of the blood of Yahushua for clarity, for clarity. Because too many people have allowed ministers of myth to get their hooks into them. But if you believe that Yahushua is the prophesied son of man, then Enoch cannot be the prophesied son of man. You can't have it both ways. You simply can't. Let's talk about Jude. Because people are saying, well, the book of Enoch, he's quoted in Jude. No. Jude never actually mentions a book or scroll of Enoch. Read it. It's only a few verses. He doesn't mention what is written, only what is said or what Enoch said. Just like myself, I quote to you all kinds of stuff. I could quote to you from a commentary, from a journal. Maybe a news article this week would be appropriate if I'm trying to illustrate a particular point. That's exactly what the biblical writers did. They used external material to draw attention and make a statement or draw out a point. But that doesn't mean that that external material is inspired, does it? I mean, use common sense. Paul quotes the pagan Greeks in poetry. Does that mean the pagan Greek poetry is inspired? Heavens forbid quotes the Roman writers, does that mean the Roman writers are inspired? Of course not. The psalmists and the prophets, 
They borrow vocabulary and paraphrase material from the ancient Egyptians to the Mesopotamians to the Syrians. But those quotations are inspired scripture either. Material doesn't make it inspired, but it had meaning to the writers. It had meaning to their audience, just as today I may quote something and it has relevant meaning to us. It doesn't mean it's inspired. So that gets rid of the whole argument that, oh, Enoch is mentioned in Jude. Well, so what? That doesn't make it inspired and authoritative, and that's the point. The New Testament nowhere validates apocrypha works. Or apocryphal works, I should say. So I believe personally that Jude and the book of Enoch are actually referencing the same oral tradition. In other words, Jude wasn't relying Enoch. Jude, I'm cutting out. What's that? All right, I'm going to flip over to a, a hand mic. Bear with me. How's that? Good? All right. So we're talking about Jude, the author, and the particular passage where people will say, oh, he's quoting Enoch. It really doesn't validate any inspiration any more than if I was quoting today a news article or an historical or oral tradition. Jude, the author, and that particular passage in the book of Enoch were both relying, I believe, on a widely held tradition of what actual Enoch said. That's all. That's all it was. Jews never accepted it as part of their canon. And for this very reason, neither did the early saints, and neither should we. Enoch is mentioned in the Quran. Does that mean that the Quran is inspired or vice versa? Heavens forbid. Not at all. So again, look at this through the lens and the clarity of Yahushua's blood. There's your three three-pronged approach. I think it makes a lot of sense. But then that's just me. You have to make your own decision, okay? The author isn't Enoch. Yet he says he is. Then he goes on to attribute the messianic prophecies to himself as visitations. He has visitations. He is definitely one and three. A liar influenced by demons. Whoever he is, in Yahushua clarity, he's a liar influenced by demons. So there you have it. I can sit down now because it's time for a fairy tale. Time for a fairy tale. Is that okay? Are we all right? We're doing okay for time? Because I am sick of you lying mamas out there, peddlers of jubilees. You've got to be new to Torah. Surely. Let's look at the book of jubilees, these lying mamas. It's written in the Maccabean period, okay? I mean, already it's kind of a, I mean, really? It's written in the Maccabean period of Hellenization by a Pharisaic Jew. It's already dodgy. Mark chapter 7, verse 8. Ye leave the commandment of Yahuwah and hold fast the tradition of men. And he said unto them, Full well do ye reject the commandment of Yahuwah that you may keep your vain traditions. Let's look at the book of Jubilees. Jubilees, we've got a five-fold failure. A five-fold failure. Jubilees plainly violates the Torah and violates the words of the Savior by adding to the word of Yahuwah. Number one, 
the fairy tale of Jubilees deceives, saying, Abraham died with Jacob lying on his chest. I mean, my goodness, these are babbling brooks. Are they not? Babbling brooks of ministers of myth. Number two, the fairy tale of Jubilees deceives again, saying, this is outrageous. Abraham, apparently, according to Jubilees, he puts a pagan wreath on his head and he dance, dances around an altar at the Feast of Tabernacles, which hadn't even been given yet. Firstly, Abraham wasn't a pagan. He crossed over. He left all that behind. And now you've got the author of Jubilees attributing Hasmonean pagan worship because it was... The Hasmoneans weren't even around in the time of Abraham. The Feast of Tabernacles wasn't even around until when the giving of the Book of the Covenant, ratification, blood, covenant, meal, Exodus 19 to 24, 11, in all clarity. But here we have, let me get, I mean, let me get this right here. Abraham, at a feast he never attended, partaking in a Hasmonean pagan rite before there were any Hasmoneans on the earth according to the writer of Jubilees. So there's your second failure. This is a five-fold failure, and I'm just having a laugh with you. But I don't want people to make a mockery of me and you and think that we're not alert to the game that they're up to. Number three, the third failure of Jubilees. According to the fairy tale of Jubilees, Jacob never wrestled with the angel of Yahweh. Oh no, it never happened. No. Nope. Nope. He didn't wrestle with the angel of Yahweh to get his name changed to Israel. This is one of the most important accounts in the Bible. But it didn't happen. No. It's just whitewashed. That's a major problem, which tells you the root of the deception. Because who is it that wants to wipe out the seed of Messiah? Who is it that wants to wipe? Um, Revelation 12 tells you very clearly who wants to wipe out the seed. This is Luciferic counterfeit. The fourth failure of Jubilees. The fairy tale of Jubilees deceives again, yet again, when it comes to the feasts. Because the author of Jubilees says Shavuot's origin was with the rainbow. Excuse me? Yes, all the way back with Noah, that's when Shavuot, that's its origin. Its inception was with the rainbow instead of when? The giving of the Book of the Covenant, Exodus 19 to 24, 11, and then a festival as they went into the land according to the account written in the Torah. This is massive because what happened at Shavuot, not only in the Book of the Covenant Torah, but then in the Book of Acts, this is paramount to our faith. And of course, it is misappropriated by the writer of the book of Jubilees. And the fifth failure, the fifth failure, the fairy tale of Jubilees deceives. If, they've al if he's already deceived you about the feasts, he's going to have to deceive you about the Sabbath. The fairy tale of Jubilees deceives on the Sabbath, saying one can't provide due benevolent unto one's wife on the Sabbath, which is in violation of the Torah, Deuteronomy 12.32. It's in violation of the Brit Hadashah, 1 Corinthians 7.5. And then the writer of Jubilee says, oh, it's Sabbath. You can't travel on a ship. 
That's a violation of the Sabbath. Well, maybe you should have told Paul and all the apostles throughout the account of the book of Acts. Because apparently they didn't know about that. Because they were doing a lot of traveling on the ships on the Sabbath. And where is that in the Torah? It's not. You cannot add or... Well, there's a lot of adding going along. And apparently you can't fast on the Sabbath according to the orthodox view of Leviticus 23 where it says that you can. But not according to the writer of Jubilees. So we've got a five-fold massive failure here when it comes to taking away and adding to the inspired 66. And all that to say this, in finality, I believe we have everything within the canon, the measured and ruled 66, determined in the Old Testament, the Jewish 22, which matches our 39 and then the New Covenant 27 for a grand total of 66. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 3, it is written, seeing that his divine power has granted unto us everything that we need, all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that called us by his own glory and virtue. He's given us everything we need. And I think everything that we need for our edification and faith is in the 66. And I have no problem if you want to read, and I do, extra biblical material. But I am not going to be a minister of myth. I want to be a minister of power and truth. And we have to decide what is inspired and what is not. The Pharisaic author of Jubilees is definitely number one, a bold-faced liar. And as Yahushua said, regarding those lying fiends, number three, influenced by demons. Because who's their daddy? S.A. Tan. So the question that you have to ask, why now? Why now? Why now are we having more of these books being floated around? Because people are trying to float new calendars. They're trying to float new ideas. And they are not supported by the 66. And they would be exposed by people like you and me because we're familiar and we are studied on the 66. So why are they doing it now? Why is there such a resurgence of the peddling of strange doctrines, myth, and speculation? Because the ministers of myth, they have to go outside the 66 to survive and to thrive. Because if they were in the 66, their folly would be exposed to all in its blood ratified clarity of the Savior. So they have to go out of the 66 to be the ministers of myth of which they truly are. Because otherwise, you and I, if they were in the Word, the inspired Word of Yahuwah, we can run circles around that. We can expose their creed and show that it is full of fatal flaws. And it contradicts the 66. And I love to read. This isn't about reading. I love to read John Bunyan and J.R.R. Tolkien. And in reality, both Enoch and Jubilees are more akin to the Pilgrim's Progress and the Hobbit fantasy than they are the Bible. And they would serve better being read at drag queen story time than they would at a Bible study. And that's it. It's very clear. So I hope that this has given you a breakdown on why I do not believe these books, Apocrypha, are inspired scripture. Because I'm a follower 
of the resurrected Savior. And there is no place for usurpers trying to steal his glory and his blood. And he is the only mediator between man and Yahuwah. So those of you outside, which camera? I've got no lights. I don't know where we are. Microphones and cameras. There you are. I've got you back. Everything went dark on me. Questions, comments. And if you like this video, give us a thumbs up. And if you, if you hate watching and you, you, you're still here, it's nearly the end. So you're obviously enthralled. So just give us a thumbs up anyway. And subscribe to the channel. It makes a difference. And hit that notification bell. Go in the comments below and just have at it. Because you will anyway. Questions, comments. Oh, we're going to have to share. We're going to have to cohabit with the mic. All right. First online question. Can Matthew give examples from the Apocrypha that people are teaching as doctrine? I think the best thing I could do is go to say, go to TorahToTheTribes.com, go to connect and join the Covenant Calendar Group because that to me is just a great resource of amazing people that come together and study the biblical truths of the calendar. And the major myths that are being peddled are regarding the calendar and that's coming out of these apocryphal apocryphal works and then big perversions when it comes to the Malkitzedic priesthood are being peddled from the apocrypha because again it's fantasy and fairy tale masquerading as truth okay next question what is wrong with the Sefer the Sefer I was given the Sefer myself years ago at like a messianic conference as a gift and um, I re-gifted it because I took it home and it was like the King Jimmy on Hebraic steroids. It was a, you know, a publication that to me was just um, something to monetize because it, they'd literally taken the King Jimmy and inserted the true name in it and um, put a nice leather binding on it and thrown in a little bit of Hebraisms. And um, it just, I didn't think it added anything and uh, wasn't something that I wanted in my library. So I don't know who I gave it to, but I hope they re-gifted it too. <laughs> okay, next question. Do you think the current surge of popularity of those texts means that we are ramping up to end times? Yes, I definitely do. I mean, it says in the end of times there's going to be more and more strange winds of doctrines. And again, I see the clarity of it because of my relationship with Yahusha. And I know you out there and in here that are moved by this teaching and we've had an amazing response thank you all out there for for supporting this particular teaching has been really surprising I thought well I'm gonna do it anyway I'm gonna get hammered and you know really there's been just an overwhelming thank you thank you amazing support because of the clarity that is brought through Yahushua and I give him all the glory so I can understand why these ministers of myth would be peddling it if they're non-believers but if you've got Yahushua as your savior, it's cut and dry because of the, stri the, the contradictions about his personage, which is how we started the whole thing. That's it. Questions in here, anybody? Oh, good. All right, blessings, blessings. So we'll catch you live next Shabbat. And remember, connect with us and register for the Feast of Tabernacles you've got eight days left. Shabbat Shalom!